This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of 100 Words or Less, the podcast. I'm your host, Ray Arkins. I am talking to you from a garage in Austin, Texas. And sometimes that's what happens because, uh, you know, I get busy and then it's Wednesday morning and I'm like, oh my gosh, I have to get this show out. Otherwise, I am disappointing myself. I don't don't so much care about you. Well, that's not true. But anyways, and I'm a little stuffy, so I apologize. If this sounds different than all of the other intros and outros, that that is why. So I have to tell you about this week's guest, though, because holy crap, this is, he tells some incredible stories. So his name is Cliff Nesterhoff, and he is an author of a book called The Comedians. And this dude is heavily influenced by, by punk and hardcore and independent music, which we will talk about in the interview. But his book and the interviews that he's done on uh, Mark Maron's show, the WTF podcast, are incredible because basically he takes these completely forgotten about narratives in stand-up comedy all the way back from like the early 1920s in vaudeville all the way up to modern times as far as stand-up as we know it is concerned now it's just it's exhaustive it's obsessive and it's incredible because otherwise these stories would be completely forgotten and um, it's just incredible. So I, I, I love, I just knew that this dude had some sort of connection to DIY music. And so that is why I had him on. He was very excited to come on. And we actually, jokingly, well, not jokingly, but oddly enough, this just shows the trajectory that, that Cliff is on. Our, uh, our first conversation, we had to reschedule because he had a call with uh, Spike Jones, you know, the music video director and... Uh, media mogul that is behind Viceland TV and so many other amazing things like her, the movie. So anyways, he is a hot commodity. And we actually talk about Hollywood towards the end as far as like him having meetings and how funny that is. So anyways, I'm front loading this conversation because I know some people will be like, who's Cliff Nesterhoff? He's an author. What does that even mean? Trust me, listen to this conversation and you will, your mind will be blown. So let's get some items of business out of the way. And then we'll dive into the conversation. So, oh, excuse me. I'm also I have a really stuffy chest as well. Oh, it's hard for me to breathe. Anyways, uh, let's uh, do the Amazon affiliate code. Like I said, if you purchase from Amazon, you should be using the code that I include every week on the show notes. So it's super, super simple. You buy something from Amazon, the show gets a kickback. Plain and simple. Your prices don't change. Nothing changes. So, do that. <laughs> it's plain and simple. I, I have the link in the show notes and uh, just bookmark that. When you do your shopping through Amazon, that's what will happen and I will be appreciative of it. And I don't see what you buy so that there's that sort of confidentiality. So if you're buying a bunch of weird stuff from Amazon, I'm not going to be like, whoa, what is all this? Why is why is person A buying seven pounds of, of bacon? It's like, what? No. Anyways, I don't even know if you could buy bacon off Amazon. I digress. And I also would really, really like to give a special shout-out. This isn't even an a, a ad or a... They're not paying me to do this. I just want to show the love for a company that a friend of mine works really, really hard on. So if you are vegan or vegetarian, marshmallows are impossible to find because they all contain gelatin, which is horse bones. <laughs> so dandies. Dandies are the best thing ever. And uh, you can get them in multiple flavors. They got pumpkin, they got original, they got the little mini ones that you toss in your hot cocoa. And it's, they're incredible. So go to mydandies.com and you can find all the information that you need about that. You can order it online. It's just a great company. It's, uh, most of the people are affiliated with Punk or Hardcore and uh, have been influenced by the DIY music scene. And it's just, uh, it's a really, really great company. And I always love what they do. And, um, you know, it's just, I, I got to show love when they show me the love. Because Dan, my friend, Dan Reed, shout out to you. He, uh, he wrote me and he was like, I really enjoy the show. And I never knew him before that. And now we're really good friends. And I love that. So anyways, yeah, if you want to write the show too, 100 words podcast at gmail.com. Maybe you and I can uh, start a relationship together. Because uh, I definitely um, take my emails seriously. I respond 
sometimes alarmingly quickly people are like, yo, really? And then other times they fall, they fall off. But anyways, I also want to direct you to a, another podcast called Turned Out a Punk with Damien Abraham, who was last week's guest. He had me on his show, and I really, really enjoyed the experience of being on his show because we talked about a lot of stuff I don't typically talk about in a public forum. And uh, a lot of you gave me great feedback on it. So go ahead and dive over there. Turn out a punk. And you'll also be able to hear a footnote show that he does, which is basically him and one of my good friends and his good friends, Chris O'Toole, talking about basically just uh, focusing on the bands and kind of the, the intricacies that get brought up in those conversations. So anyways, I uh, yeah, let's just get to the conversation with Cliff. All right. I will talk to you after the jump. I like. I imagine many people were introduced to you via uh, Marin's podcast, um, mm-hmm. and I think the what appealed to me so much about your your first appearance was, uh, I, I guess, the earnestness in which you approached it. Like you were, uh, you could hear the general enthusiasm uh, that you were not only relating to him, but just the stories that you were telling, that obviously were contained in a lot of the writing you were doing, um, and the attention to detail made me. Th- th- that's what kind of made me think, like. I'll bet you this Cliff dude has had some uh, experience within the context of like punk and hardcore and that sort of stuff. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because I think there's, we're just drawn to that obsessive nature of it. Do you, uh, have you always been kind of like that, that sort of obsessive dude over things or was that just uh, completely dedicated to, to comedy as it were? Well, no, it didn't have uh, anything to do with comedy. I never think of it in terms of obsession, but uh, I think in, Maybe it stems from the fact that I collected uh, records when I was a teenager, and I know a lot of record collectors are obsessive and uh, full bore insane. You know, they, uh, the way they catalog things, the way they have the impulse to go to thrift stores and flea markets and scour for things, and are always, you know, will go out of their way to try and uh, and uh, crate dig, as it were. So that's sort of my initial uh, obsession, that's where it came out of. And that's also where the comedy thing came out of because I started to collect comedy records when I was a teenager along with uh, everything else. And certainly part of that was uh, uh, punk culture because I grew up in a very isolated uh, area in Canada. And where I grew up, uh, it's very different than when you live in a big city as I have now for the past uh, almost 20 years. Uh, You live in a city, you seek out the show that you want to see, you know, whether it's your favorite band coming through town or whatever, and you buy a ticket and you go to a show. But where I grew up, it was so isolated, we never had that luxury. Nobody of any note ever came through my area. I can't even say ever came through town because I didn't even grow up in a town. I grew up in the, in the woods. So people would say to me, a friend at school or something, hey, are you going to go to the punk gig on Friday? And the answer would immediately be yes, of course. And then the first question was, who's playing? Like, it didn't matter who the band was. You just went and saw the band, regardless, because it was your only entertainment. So that was sort of how I got into uh, punk stuff, was just because it was the only thing to go and see, you know? So whether it was at a Legion Hall or in a gravel pit, I would frequently uh, go and see bands like... uh, uh, DOA, No Means No, The Subhumans. These are all Canadian bands, but I think they're fairly well known and outside of Canada. Uh, and, uh, and groups like that. And, you know, you buy, uh, a seven inch at random. There was always a kid with a table, uh, and a little distro list of, of things you could order from him at all of these punk gigs. And that's how I got into those, uh, that type of, uh, music. And even in thrift stores, occasionally I would find records by, uh, I remember I found a 45 by a group <laughs> by a group called the Rodders from Los Angeles, and they did a single called "Sit on My Face," Stevie Nicks, which was a punk song from the early 80s. And uh, I remember I bought an LP in a Salvation Army by the punk band Millions of Dead Cops, which was quite uh, remarkable. But uh, the obsession came out of collecting records. Right, right. I, I, I mean, all these things that you're saying are obviously triggering uh, so many memories, and you're hitting on a lot of. Um... 
I think, important topics on there in regards to, because I, I was actually just having a discussion with a, a friend of mine recently. Um, I played in bands for years and did, you know, a, a lot of touring, but I always found um, the most compelling and frankly fun shows that we played weren't your New York's or Los Angeles's or Chicago's. It was like Valparaiso, Indiana. It was like the towns that were clearly starved for not only entertainment, but culture, like exactly what you're talking about, where, like you said, it didn't matter who was playing. You're like, yeah, I'm there. Like, <laughs> it doesn't matter. And then you, I'm sure, because you were excited that it was happening, would probably be that much more engaged with whatever was happening there. Like you said, from a distro to the fact that, you know, the band was playing and you would go in the circle pit. And like, I, I presume that speaks directly to your experience. Well, I have always uh, believed that punk in particular, flourishes in the worst places. So the more there is to rebel against, whether it's uh, industry, a lot of punk flourishes in factory towns in America. I don't know for sure, but I would theorize that if you were to go to places like Detroit now and depressed towns that used to be vibrant uh, factory towns that now have mass unemployment and mass poverty in this country, that's likely where the punk scene is most vibrant. That's probably where most of the teenage kids are, are going to have these uh, passionate uh, punks and punk scenes. So people think of the Midwest or they think of the South in America as being uh, conservative or uneducated. But in every one of those areas, there are smart kids that are stuck there. And those who are rebelling against that atmosphere tend to be the punks. I mean, for that reason, they tend to have the most vibrant punk scenes. You know, the most vibrant punk scene is never in New York or Los Angeles. It's the punks that move away from those other towns that come to Los Angeles and come to New York that kind of boy the punk scene in urban areas. It's not people that were born in Los Angeles, born in New York, born in Chicago that make up the punk scenes. It's all these kids that were raised in places like uh, uh, Bakersfield or, right. or just, you know, kind of armpit uh, towns. And that was certainly true in Canada. And where I grew up, there were three towns nearby. Uh, there was a town called Nelson, which was sort of like a really pretty hippie town, and it had no punk scene. But it was considered the most progressive town, but there was no punk scene. Uh, the next town over was called Castlegar, and it had a smelter, and uh, and uh, Russian pacifist culture, and it sort of had like a half a punk scene. And then there was another town a little bit further away called Frail that was all smokestacks, and all the kids in the elementary school couldn't go outside for recess because there was a big scare. The kids were getting lead poisoning from the sandboxes in the uh, playground, and that town of like 8,000 people had a huge punk scene. That's where all the punk shows were, and that's where we drove to to go see all the big bands that came through town and uh and by big, I'm qualifying that statement. Big for us, right. you know, these indie bands, um, and even a lot of bands that became like big indie pop groups later. Uh, uh, like uh, I'm trying to think of some of the names: <clears throat> The Weaker Thins, a band called Duotang. Uh, there was a band called Mao M A O W that I don't think anybody would remember, but uh, I remember seeing them open for a band called the Hanson Brothers, not to be confused with the boy group Hanson, but right. the Hanson Brothers were no means no's alter ego. Uh, they based it on the characters from Slapshot, uh, the Hanson Brothers, who were the fighting kind of trio of brothers who had horn rim glasses in that movie Slapshot. They dressed up like them, and then they did all punk songs about hockey. And at this one gig I went to, the opening act was this band called Mao, M-A-W-M-E-O-W, three girls in cowboy hats, and it was kind of like old country, and they were fantastic. I remember seeing them when I was 16, but the audience was uh, ambivalent because they were not there to see them. Mm -hmm. It was only years later when I was trying to, uh, uh, you know, my memory had been jogged for some reason. I was like, whatever happened to that band now? And I Googled it. turns out that uh, this was years and years before she was known, the uh, front person for Mal was uh, Nico Case. Right. <laughs> so back in those days, I got to see a lot of these uh, groups before they were, uh, had any notoriety. But it was really uh, interesting to see that so much of the punk and indie culture came out of the worst possible places uh, because, you know, that's where the, the, the rebellion came from. Mm -hmm. Sure. The, the fact that there was the idea that, 
you could see your future because it was so directly implanted in front of you from, like you said, the smokestacks looming over the city. You're like, I I, there needs to be another plan, and I need to make this other yeah. plan. Yeah, yeah, and as, and as you know, you know, all DIY culture, it's political. You know, uh, part of it is, is part of the whole DIY concept is rejecting uh, uh, corporate uh, control and what you're spoon fed by corporate media and uh, and and corporate uh, music and and going in about a, a more uh, um, legitimate voice that kind of speaks to your experience. And in these factory towns, you know, there were frequent labor struggles, layoffs, uh, d- depression, and all of this was a reaction to that. So it was also a very politicizing thing, you know. So the first time I ever read anything by uh, Noam Chomsky or Howard Zinn, it was the same uh, guy, you know, who was selling punk 45s at the distro table. There also would be these little seven-story press paperbacks of uh, Noam Chomsky on globalization, Noam Chomsky on Latin America. You could buy them for $5. And it was this incredible window into a perspective that uh, you would not necessarily otherwise get in such an isolated area because even the public libraries did not really stock anything beyond Stephen King and Daniel Steele novels. So uh, punk culture uh, was very important to me in the uh, uh, shaping of my uh, uh, perspective uh, when I was a teenager. Yeah. And certainly collecting records opened my eyes in big ways, too. You know, the first time I discovered uh, Frank Zappa and brought that home, it, it, I found a lot of parallels between uh, the perspective of Frank Zappa on these LPs from the 1960s and what he was saying and uh, the Dan Kennedy's records that I was picking up that were recorded in the 80s. You know, there was a very similar temperament about uh, nonconformity and uh, rejecting what you were told and, and rebelling against authority figures who uh, were not authoritative out of any logic, simply out of uh, a place of control and conformity. So that was very important to me, and it certainly... Uh, shaped my psyche in, in uh, seminal ways when I was when I was young. Sure, yeah, I, I like the thread you pulled on in regards to the exposure, obviously, of new ideas. Because you know, when you are that that uh, young age of you know whatever, just entering high school, junior high, all that sort of stuff, when you do have, because I mean, I like I I completely remember my head being cracked open by you know a punk band like Propagandi, where it's like they were singing about yeah, yeah they were singing about some really challenging things like. And 15-year-old me was like, I don't understand half of this, but clearly this is meaningful to them, so I should probably pay attention to you know what the WTO is and all this other stuff. That's cool. I, I didn't know that they had a following in the United States, but Propagandi were from Winnipeg, and a lot of those uh, Canadian punk bands came through my town. It was always at the Legion Hall which is kind of ironic in retrospect, you know, it was right. uh, a drinking hall for World War II veterans, very conservative people generally, and yet all the punk gigs uh, took place there at the Legion Hall. They would rent it out, I guess, for very cheaply, and then you could see these bands. And I did see Propagandi. Uh, there was a band called Submission Hold yep. at the time. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the others, but... Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, those were those were good times uh, for me. They were my first times out of the house. You know, I was under the age, uh, the drinking age, so you couldn't go to a bar uh, to see anybody that was coming through town. Uh, so these were very important uh, portals into an outside world, and I definitely really got into uh, the music of it. I was not. There were lots of punk bands that came to town that weren't any good as well, and I, I did not. Uh, have any illusions that they were good just because they were punk. I remember seeing a terrible band called the Dinks. Great name, terrible band. <laughs> sure. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was a very, very important. I can't really remember a lot of the others, but Propaganda, I certainly remember, and they had a huge following. Uh, uh, oh, there was a band called Removal, and they opened for No Means No frequently. I remember seeing them play in a skateboard park, and halfway through the show, they had to stop the show because a kid on the ramp was skateboarding and he fell and he broke his neck and they had to stop the show and the paramedics had to come in and they had to very uh, delicately lift up his body into a stretcher so they didn't cause any more harm and the show ended for an hour but this band had come in from Vancouver and this was nine hours away from Vancouver so <laughs> they got the kid into the ambulance and the show had been brought to a, a grinding halt uh, removal 
just went back up on stage and went, one, two, three, four, and went right back into the show. <laughs> I love <laughs> but, that. Uh, Removal were fantastic. They were the opening act for No Means No, and they didn't have any singing. A lot of the time in hardcore music for me, uh, a band could be ruined just by the guy screaming. Like, you know, I'd never really understood that primal death scream, uh, the need for it in a lot of circumstances. Because a lot of the time the musicians would be phenomenal. You know, the, the guitar player would be phenomenal. The bass player would be phenomenal. The drummer would be phenomenal. And then some guy screaming would kind of destroy it all for me. You know, it would kind of upstage the musicianship. But this band Removal did not have a singer. It was just hardcore music, all instrumental, which I had not seen or heard before. And seldom do you ever see that even today. And uh, they were remarkable, this band Removal. I don't know what ever happened to them, but they were excellent. Yeah, that doesn't that doesn't sound familiar. I don't think they they may have made an impact over here, but yeah, it's and I also found it interesting too. The uh, like you were mentioning, Propaganda and Submission Hold, and like those are all bands that I, I saw as well because they did they did make an impact here. Um, like I, I I live whatever about an hour south of you and was raised generally speaking within the the Orange County area. But there was a lot of those bands that came through, and there was this. Uh, I just always found it funny because it was like here are these bands rallying against you know a, a very large capitalist system like you know America Canada, but it was like there was so much political messaging coming from Canada yeah. and then a lot of bands here in the States were, you know, maybe some of them had a political strain through them, but then so many of them were just completely vapid of that. And I was like, why are so many bands from Canada so pissed about America? And it just, I didn't make that correlation. But then as I grew older, I was like, Oh, I see why this happened. Well, what, what was the reason that it happened? Well, I know. I, I just, I, because I saw the fact that they were, um, because the, the the notion of Canada being um, this this you know quiet neighbor to the north and never shining a light on anything in particular, and then here these obviously these punk bands that were completely the antithesis of that, trying to push through and make noise, and then obviously coupling it with really really um, good musicianship because both you know whatever propaganda and submission hold were very good at what they did. Um, yeah, yeah. And so submission hold had a flute player, I think. They did, yeah. They were super, super out there and progressive. Um, but yeah, so I, I think I think that a lot of it, you know, it's interesting that you say a lot of these American punk bands did not have a uh, political streak because, you know, Canada is like the rest of the world for whatever. Well, I mean, we could. I shouldn't say for whatever reason. There is a clear reason, but right. America, American culture is not particularly politically aware. Even though people talk politics a lot in America, it's in a bubble. You know, Democrats versus Republicans. There is not a, a proper perspective overall, and it's very uh, America-centric, whereas the rest of the world is more internationally centric. So in Canada, people are aware of injustice in Canada. They're aware of injustice in America. They're aware of American foreign policy. But in America, nobody is aware of American foreign policy. They're only aware of what's going on in their bubble. So uh, and that's true even of people that are on the left in America. And I think currently our election year here is a good example of that. I find it fascinating that Bernie Sanders is a new figure to most people this year in America, a guy who was in uh, a senator and in Congress for 30 years in the United States is only being introduced to people in the United States for the first time now. Whereas in Canada, I, I've been aware of Bernie Sanders for 20 years because uh, he really stood out as one of the only voices of reason inside American political discourse. And, you know, he's not considered a radical elsewhere in the world. He's kind of on par with the same uh, uh, general mainstream views outside the United States. So I think maybe that's maybe why some of those Canadian bands uh, were so political, because it wasn't abnormal uh, to be so when you're, you know, from other parts of the world where you get different sources of information, not strictly uh, Fox News and MSNBC and sort of this corporate uh, uh, narrative, you know, petty issues that people don't care about instead of the greater issues that most of the world is uh, uh, concerned with. Right, right. No, that's a very good point. Um the uh, jumping around here, but then uh, kind of identifying because uh, I've spoken to a, a few uh, comedians on on this show from like uh, Jonah Ray and Kyle Kinney and like some of the more modern guys that have a large influence within the context of, of punk and hardcore because that's where they came up in. Um, but I, I didn't I, I didn't really dive down to to the idea of correlating like the similarities between 
a stand-up comedian from, you know, traveling and touring and the similarities between a, you know, DIY punk or hardcore band touring are almost exactly the same, you know, sometimes playing to very different audiences. And I don't think a lot of people would make that uh, correlative jump if they obviously didn't experience one or the other. Uh, but I presume like right. when, when you started to, um, you know, kind of go out there and perform as a standup, um, did you notice the similarities or did, was that something that just dawned on you later? Yeah, no, I definitely, I saw that not only did I see the similarities, I exploited, uh, the similarities, uh, because when I started doing standup, like anybody else, it's not easy to get stage time because one, you don't know what you're doing. So you don't know where to go. You don't know anybody. So there's nobody to help you. And, and thirdly, you're, you're just bad. You're terrible. So even if you know where to go, people aren't going to give you stage time because you suck. You know? So I couldn't get a lot of stage time in traditional comedy venues. So I started, this was in Toronto back in 98 when I started doing stand up, And I, would scour the free weekly listings for any open mic, not comedy, just open mic in general. So I'd go and perform on poetry shows, folk music shows, and frequently would end up doing stand-up on, on bills where I was the only comedian. Everybody else was, you know, a folk singer with a guitar. And so I was doing that in order to get stage time, uh, but I was also very comfortable with punk uh, uh, culture. And a lot of comedians who, you know, were not into that were very uncomfortable in such an atmosphere and would never dream of doing stand-up in uh, that kind of an environment. So I would do stand-up in those kinds of environments. And as I I got better, uh, I would continue to perform in those kinds of environments because it was a good audience for me. It was a similar uh, shared sensibility, you know. And sometimes uh, I'm getting ahead of myself, but eventually I was booking shows in a punk rock bar in uh, Vancouver, comedy shows. And I could not book a lot of people on that bill because I know they just wouldn't do well in front of that audience because maybe their perspective was a little bit too uh, reactionary or maybe their uh, um, their, their gap uh, wardrobe just was the antithesis of the environment. And maybe rightly or wrongly, the audience would prejudge them based on that alone and that they would have an uphill uh, climb because of that. But I didn't have that uh, issue. I kind of looked like the people in that audience. Uh, and back in those days, it wasn't that long ago, but there was not what there is now, where now it feels like half the comedians or more kind of have this hipster uh, look to them. But when I was doing stand-up, that was not the norm. That was very uncommon. You had people who looked like that in music culture, but very seldom in comedy culture. So I kind of uh, uh, plugged into that demographic when I started to get better and I moved to Vancouver and was doing stand-up there. I was doing an open mic every Tuesday at a punk rock bar there, a hardcore bar that uh, only booked uh, punk bands and big punk bands too. And, uh, I did really well there at the open mic. I was the only comedian, but I, I really uh, uh, found a voice there, and I became very popular there, and eventually they offered me my own show. And I did that for a couple of years. Uh, I think it was a monthly show, and that was one of the best audiences for me. And because of that, I started to do much better than most of the comedians in Vancouver because I had double the audience to perform for. Most of these comedians only performed in comedy venues. I was performing in both comedy venues and music venues. And so because of that, I had twice the following of anybody else in the city. And uh, the show that I was doing at the punk bar, I started to bill it. I did a character named Shecky Gray, and I started to bill it as a uh, Shecky Gray punk rock comedy. And I just, and it also followed the template of all the bands. I had t-shirts made up, you know, I, I, I went around town and I, with my packing tape or my duct tape. And I put up posters that I, you know, made with a photocopier. I marketed myself the same way a punk band would market themselves. And uh, because of that, I had an enormous amount of success in Vancouver that a lot of other comedians didn't and had this great uh, following amongst that community. 
Yeah, that's really, that's really cool because I, I definitely haven't heard a person describe it in, in the manner that you did where it was you were utilizing this. Like not only were you taking the ethos that you learned, but then you were obviously taking the, the general practices, like you said, of a band um, and be able to promote yourself. Did you ever? Yeah, it was really the only way I knew how to do it, you know. And, and you would look at the posters that were released by a comedy club and they looked so terrible and they looked so corny. And a lot of my friends would not come to comedy shows because of that. They they had a, a uh, aversion to it, you know. They thought it was square. They thought it was corny. They thought it was the 1980s comedy boom style, you know. So I really wanted to figure out a way to make sure that it was clear that what I was doing was cool, you know. So it was very important to me. So I kind of just picked up the lessons of the of the of the cool bands that I knew. Right. Um, did you ever play in a band yourself? Like, did you have that desire, or or was comedy obviously no. the direction? No. Yeah. No. I don't know how to play any music. I have a good ear for for music from collecting records. Uh, but uh, no, I never I never played in a band, and uh, uh, people used to frequently ask me what my band was called <laughs> if I said I was doing, if I said I was doing a show that week, just because of how I looked. Right. But, uh, no, I've never, ever played uh, music. I don't have the, uh, the knack for it, but I always had a knack for being funny. So yeah, it was a obvious, uh, career choice back then. <laughs> right. Right. You're like, yeah, I can't do this. So I am totally going to do this. Um, yeah. The, uh, the, the, another thread that I, I, I was really identified with, uh, in your book and obviously all the stories that you collected, um, was the fact that, um, especially obviously in the early days of almost every, uh, thread that you pull on from, you know, vaudeville to television, um, no, no one had any fucking clue what they were doing. Um, especially the, I think the most uh, obvious one was the, uh, you know, with the, the joke stealing scenarios where it's like people had to, um, you know, mail in their jokes to the, the, the central registry or whatever. And like, that was kind of, uh, the, the principle that they were going to, uh, govern their body by. Um, I presume that was just something that was so entertaining to you once you started to like look into all these stories where it was just like, Oh yeah, like all, the foundations of all these things that seem so professional now, um, it's just a total facade where no one has any idea what they're doing. Yeah, but that's that's true of any art form and the trajectory of any art form. No matter how uh, successful somebody is or becomes, they all have that shared story that when they started out as a filmmaker or as a writer or as a performer, they did not know how you did it. They did not know the ins and outs. It's all about experience, of course. So uh, uh, it is an interesting thing to chart, as I have in my book, simply because it's very relatable. And it's very comforting to know that all of our heroes also failed, also struggled, also uh, you know went through uh, different elements of hardship in order to get where they are. You know, it's a, kind of, it's a very comforting thing to know that that is a universal experience, that nobody starts out in their art form knowing how to do it uh, or starts out being good, that everybody starts out, you know, as a failure and has to remain a failure and struggle for years and years and years until they get good. So that is one of the main uh, themes of my book is struggle. And the other uh, main theme of my book is influence, how uh, we're all influenced by those who came before. We're all influenced uh, uh, by those we admire and uh, and how that is kind of an absolute and a constant in uh, in all arts. Yeah, for sure. No, I I, I really like that. What was the? Um, I guess I mean obviously I'm sure it's it's hard for you to maybe pull a specific example, but what was the most I guess endearing example of that to you of just the 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 sheer um, like we're taking you know total stabs in the dark of trying to like put this thing together, whether it was um, uh, you know uh, trying to start up a comedy club or anything like that that you tripped across that you were like oh man like I really that really hits the nail on the head. Well, I don't know if any examples off off the top of my head uh, in terms of researching a book that I could think of. But some of the most inspiring stories I find are those who have their success much later in life. So in the previous generation, the best example is Rodney Dangerfield. He had started stand-up in the 40s and 50s, never really made a go of it. He quit stand-up uh, under pressure from his wife, who he was trying to support but couldn't. So he quit stand-up and became a salesman, um, only to return to show business years later 
And it was only when he was in his 60s that he became a triumphant star. He had already been on Ed Sullivan in the 60s and Johnny Carson in the 70s, but it really wasn't until the 1980s that Rodney Dangerfield became a fucking superstar, and he was already a senior citizen by that point. And yet his audience was a bunch of uh, college-age kids that were packing uh, theaters and stadiums. So that's kind of inspiring to know that uh, even in late in life, you can succeed if you have failed in the first half of your life or maybe if you perceive yourself as a failure is a better way of putting it. Uh, Lewis Black today is another good example. Lewis Black didn't find his success until he was in his late night, until he was in his late forties. He had been a, uh, a playwright for the first uh, a couple decades of his adult life. And as I'm sure you can imagine, a playwright, playwright does not have a, a a uh, very easy time paying the rent. And so he struggled for years and years and years right into his 40s and now is, uh, you know, one of the most successful uh, comedians going. So both stories I find uh, inspiring and, and relatable. The idea that uh, uh, if you struggle long enough, it will pay off in show business or in the arts if you have talent, even if that struggle is or feels like it's going on and on for an inordinate amount of time, you know, so it's never really too late, uh, in life to have a payoff if you, uh, keep at it. Right. Right. Um, was the, uh, when you, when you're the idea of obviously putting, uh, a lot of the stories you've been culminating on the, uh, WFMU blog, uh, to make this into a book, um, was it one of those things like when that first started to kind of uh, congeal as a reality, was that, uh, I guess, intimidating for you to be able to be like, yo, I got to like tie this all together in a narrative or, or was it, you're just like, well, I guess this is work. This is what I got to do. So this is cool. It was a little bit of a, a little bit intimidating because the book that I published was not really the book that I had pitched in the first place. The original idea for my book was a, uh, a history of comedians and the mafia. Cause if you worked in nightclubs in the thirties, forties, fifties or sixties, nine times out of 10, your boss was the mob. And I found that quite fascinating. I thought that would be uh, not just a good book, but a marketable book. But the publisher, Grove Press, a great subversive indie press, by the way, uh, who were very seminal in the 50s and 60s, both in beat culture as uh, also champions of free speech and fighting many uh, censorship battles successfully. They were the first to have the naked lunch by William Burroughs published in America, Tropic of Cancer by Henry Miller, and many other uh, controversial books, Girls Press. So there's a little bit of a, a lineage there that uh, feeds into uh, latter-day punk culture in a way. Mm-hmm. Anyways, um, <clears throat> they had told me or asked me to write a book that went back further to the days of vaudeville and came up more current to the days of podcasts. And that was kind of intimidating because that's not what I wanted to do. So I wasn't sure that I could make it good without really having a passion for that. You know, I was not interested in vaudeville. I did not know that I could figure out a way to make it interesting to a contemporary reader, especially uh, in in the case of the fact that uh, I, I personally didn't find it interesting. So that was a bit of a struggle. I did figure out a way by focusing sort of on the sex, drugs, and rock and roll aspect of vaudeville to make it entertaining for a contemporary uh, reader. But that was a little bit uh, harrowing. And yes, the idea of writing a full book is kind of daunting uh, for a number of reasons. Like you say, you know, previously I'd just written blog posts for WFMU, so it's a very different animal to write a full book. Uh, you know, I've never taken a class or a course in how you're supposed to structure a book. I've never taken a creative writing course. I've never been to university. I've never been to college, and I don't have a high school diploma. So all of that was kind of daunting to think that here's a giant company giving you a bunch of money and you've signed this contract. Now you have to deliver this book that is going to be read and reviewed, hopefully by establishment people like the New York times and the wall street journal and people who have graduated from Ivy league school. So that was a little bit intimidating. I was afraid that this book would come out and it would be dismissed as uh, 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 illiterate uh, trash because I don't have that confidence in myself. You know, I don't have that, I don't have that background. I don't have that education. So I'm not good with grammar. I'm not good with knowing the difference between how something is supposed to be presented in a rule of style uh, or, or not. Like, I have no concept. All I have is just kind of raw talent 
and uh, and, a, and a knack for appropriately uh, sprinkling uh, uh, swear words throughout the uh, the book. So <laughs> sure. So I really was kind of uh, full of trepidation, and I spent the first six months of the writing process not doing much uh, uh, writing. Mostly, I was reading books in the Hollywood sunshine, wandering the streets, high on drugs. I really did not have much uh, of a work ethic until I really figure out, figured out a way, uh, uh, not, not a way so much as a rhythm of how to get it done. You know, once you have a routine in any uh, uh, project, then it becomes much easier to get into. You know, the more, it's like working out at a gym. If you do it five days a week, then it's really easy to go to the gym and work out. But if you never go to the gym and work out and you try to go to the gym and work out, it's almost impossible. So writing a book was sort of a, a similar thing. It took a while to get into the groove of it. But once I did, and it was a pleasure and a joy, and uh, and it turns out that I wrote a good book, and it was critically acclaimed by all those uh, Ivy League types that uh, intimidated me so much. Got a rave review in the New York Times, rave review in the Wall Street Journal, rave review in the Washington Post. I got invited to speak at Harvard. I got invited to speak at the Library of Congress. In a couple months, I'm going to be addressing the uh, uh, annual National Convention of Mensa in San Diego. So it turns out that my uh, my concerns were either ill-founded or I have really uh, uh, pulled the uh, the wool over their eyes. Totally, yeah. You, you just duped everybody, Cliff. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Jabberjaw Media is excited to announce the Jabberjaw Media Block on Adobe Radio, which is an internet streaming radio station. So starting Thursday, April 7th, tune into Adobe.com from 5 to 8 p.m. Eastern for the premieres of Modern Vinyl, followed by Break It Down with Matt Carter. Again, that's the Jabberjaw Media Block on Adobe Radio, adobe.com. Funny, too, because you actually mentioned work ethic, and that was something that I personally, um, you know, just ever since I became aware of you, it, it seems like you, um, you know, you, you did have a good work ethic kind of backbone established where it did seem like you were, um, and I don't even want to use the word like pimping yourself out because clearly the idea of self-promotion, there's like a, a certain level of comfort that uh, us raised within the context of, of the independent music community are like, oh, dude, I don't want to be one of those people. Um, but it did seem like you had a work ethic, but it's funny that you reflect on that time of just being like, yeah, I didn't know what I was doing. And I really didn't have that, that, uh, backbone that maybe you were illustrating to the general public as such, but, um, you were, uh, not, yeah, not it's all spot. an illusion. It, it's still like that. I don't work hard at all. Uh, but I've had friends tell me that I'm, I work harder than anybody else they know, which is weird because maybe it's just that I don't think of it as work. You know, uh, I have this great luxury where, so for instance, this morning I was sitting here in my underwear, I watched an episode of the Dick Cavett show from 1969 and the guest was Red Fox. Now I'm just sitting in my underwear doing nothing, just drinking coffee, but I can actually justify it and say I'm doing research, you know, cause it's Red Fox as a comedian. I'm a historian. I'm watching an old talk show. Right. So I figured out a way to make uh, my natural inclination to just sheer laziness and consuming my passions, whether it's movies or comedians or whatever, into being my job. So I really, I don't know how I figured that out, but somehow I did it. It's uh, it's pretty sweet. Right, yes. But uh, I I am definitely a fraud. There's no question. I do nothing all day. I wander around. I'm I'm stoned half the time. I'm drunk the other half the time. I'm just uh, sitting around reading books and watching YouTube and somehow made it a career. So that is uh, truly miraculous. But I think also that is kind of the life of uh, any artist, no matter what, if you're a filmmaker or a musician or a comedian or a writer, you have to allot yourself the freedom to be free, to be able to think, to be able to process, to be able to create and do it at your own pace. And uh, it's amazing that people uh, would think of me as somebody with a hard, uh, strong work ethic. I, I love that, but it's only because I give myself the freedom to be lazy all day without feeling guilty about it. Because if I give myself that freedom, then I'm a, uh, uh, I free myself up to be very, very creative. Whereas if I put the pressures on myself to really uh, uh, worry or concern myself with the fact that I'm not producing as much as I should be by the hour or by the day, then those pressures cripple you and they keep you from being able to produce. But if you give yourself that freedom to be creative, Little by little, it starts to add up more and more and more so that by the end of the month, 
you've got a great deal of work uh, uh, done. Uh, when I was 18, I heard this great anecdote that stuck with me for a long, long time. And they told me that Mel Brooks, in the writer's room of your show of shows, the Sid Caesar sketch comedy program in the early 50s, they said that he would spit out 100 ideas a day. Carl Miner tells this story. Mel Brooks in the writer's room would just yell everything out, joke after joke after joke, and none of them were funny. 100 jokes a day, and 99 of them were shit. They were garbage. They didn't even make sense. They, they, they weren't something you could put on paper. They weren't funny, and they weren't logical, and they just didn't work. But one of the things that he would yell out every day was brilliant. It would be a hilarious line, and they would use it. And he would do that every day. And so one great idea every day, five days a week, is five brilliant ideas a week. And then five times four, there's 20 brilliant ideas that Mel Brooks was producing a month. And so that adds up to a great deal of uh, content you can use, you know. So the fraction of it, the fact that 99 out of 100 were trashed turned out to be irrelevant because one was brilliant. So that's sort of the way I work. Most of what I do is trash. Most of what I do is garbage. Most of what I write down is not usable. And most of the hours in my day are spent uh, wasted. But if I add it all up and just one hour a day is productive and five hours a week is productive and 20 hours a month are productive, then suddenly I've got a body of work to show for it. Yeah, no, it's a it's a very important point because I I do think there's that total cliched narrative of like life is for the living, seize every moment, and then you know people end up uh, crippled by that thought process. And like you said, the idea of being able to give yourself the time to um, <clears throat> find your own rhythm and to be able to get into that space in which you can create whatever it is you're creating, uh, but then people never allow themselves to get in that space. And so yeah, it's a it's a it's a really cool anecdote and important point. Um, the because uh, you correct me if I'm wrong, but there uh, basically you started to uh, did you start to transition out of stand up when you were uh, up in like the Vancouver area and then moving down to L.A. or how did that kind of uh, play itself out? Well, I, I did stand up from 1998 till 2006, and I quit stand up around 2006. I kind of peaked. I had great success. 2002, 2003, 2004, 2005. That's when I was really uh, uh, cooking, as it were. I still have all this press, but I'm gonna, I gotta go get it framed because uh, now when I look back on it, I'm very proud of it. Because in 2002, I was 22 years old, and I was on the front uh, cover of a couple uh, magazines up there, and I always had great reviews. And to look back on it is is impressive to myself to realize how young I was at the time. But uh, I quit in 2006 uh, for a couple of reasons, uh, but the main reason was Vancouver is a very small uh, market. So there's only so far you could go. I was having a great success in stand-up, and yet uh, I had nothing more to show for it. I wasn't suddenly making any more money. Uh, I wasn't uh, um, performing to a larger audience. I wasn't performing in better venues or different venues. There was sort of a monotony to it, a homogeny, and that became very frustrating. You couldn't tell whether your new material was good or bad, because frequently there just weren't enough people in the audience. You know, I told you that I used to book this show at the punk bar in Vancouver, the Shecky Gray punk rock comedy show. And despite the fact that my act was very popular, uh, every third show would be empty, you know, and some people would blame it on the Vancouver rain. Some people would blame it on the fact there was a hockey game on TV that night, but there was really never any logic to it. And I used to book, uh, Zach Galifianakis on this show frequently, and I'd be on the show, Zach would be on the show, two other comedians would be on the show, and we'd have eight people in the audience, you know. So that became very, very frustrating. Now, it wasn't as rewarding as it should have been, and I found that I could make a little bit more money writing than doing stand-up. I started doing stuff for the CBC in uh, Canada, writing for the radio, a couple different programs. And so that seemed like a more logical avenue. Uh, so I quit stand-up, and at the same time, I got a job, uh, really the only job I've ever held. Uh, from the whole punk background, so many people that are involved in DIY culture, punk culture, like I say, are political. A lot of them are activists. 
And I was too. And I got a gig working in a crack house in uh, Vancouver as a sort of liaison, uh, a community liaison, as it were. Uh, I don't know if you ever walk through Skid Row and go past one of those SRO hotels. There's always a guy in the lobby who's like a behind desk in a cage, yep. buzzing people in and out. That was me. I okay. did that in a crack house in Vancouver for a couple of years until I got promoted to uh, the cage of a SRO full of heroin addicts. <laughs> and then a couple of years after that, uh, I got hired by the same uh, company that kind of managed these buildings uh, to work at an experimental clinic that nursed heroin addicts with life-threatening infections back to health. So if you were a heroin addict, for instance, who breaks his leg and needs to go to the hospital, you might have to be in the hospital for several days, but if you're addicted to heroin, you can't suddenly just stop using heroin. And if you start shooting up in the hospital, they'll kick you out of the hospital. So what is the solution to that? Well, we had this clinic where if you had health issues and you're a heroin addict, you could come, get seen by a doctor, be nursed by a nurse, and use drugs in a safe environment, harm reduction environment, not be judged, not be arrested, nothing like that. So I worked in that clinic as a support worker uh, for about four or five years. And the whole time that I was writing for WFME and writing about comedians, all these blog posts, I was doing so from the desk at these crack houses and heroin housing and this clinic. So uh, I actually found that very uh, rewarding, although it was very strange to be flying down to Los Angeles to do stuff here and to appear on Mark Maron's podcast and talk about old comedians like Shecky Green and then fly back to Vancouver and go into a crack house. That was my life for about five or six years. Right. Um, so I had these two kind of parallel uh, worlds, but uh, uh, the sort of uh, uh, activist side and then sort of the old-timey show business uh, side. So after stand-up, that was my life. I don't talk about it very often, but that was my life uh, between stand-up and turning into a professional uh, writer was was working in drug houses. Right. Well, I mean, I think I I think that's really interesting because I think a lot of people uh, um, that do pursue a creative art um, that you know whether it's like playing in a band or whatever, you do live in these really two opposite worlds where it's like you know uh, I can't count the the amount of times that like you know I personally like went out for a weekend's worth of shows and then like on Monday morning got dropped off at like you know the local community college at like eight a.m. to a math class and then just being like I just played St. George, Utah last night. Like, what is my life? And like you having that same experience where it's like getting, getting you on Marin show and then being like, all right, well back to the crack house. And it's like, <laughs> there's nothing, there's nothing more, um, uh, I guess, leveling. Uh, inter- yeah. Interestingly enough, a lot of my coworkers were in bands in very notable bands. In fact, many former members of the subhumans uh, work there. Uh, some of the members of DOA work <laughs> there. Some of the members of the pointed sticks work there. And then more contemporary bands, uh, like Black Mountain, I think that entire band oh, also yeah. worked for the same company that I was working at. They also ran uh, the supervised injection site in Vancouver, which is sort of notorious because it's the only such facility in North America. It's based on the European model of uh, where a heroin addict can go in and uh, shoot up heroin legally in a facility under a nurse's uh, supervision. So that was part of the same company, too. I didn't actually work at that. Right. Uh, facility, but a lot of these uh, people from uh, these punk bands and rock bands uh, were all part of that too. Sure, sure, yeah, it supports the the transient lifestyle where it's like, yeah, you could you know go, like, you could feasibly take some time off in order to pursue a, a tour or whatever, and yeah, you can come back and you'll you'll have your jobs. Yeah, right. yeah, and also the sensibility fit. You know, musicians, yeah. some many of them are addicts themselves, many of them are reformed addicts, and if they're not. A lot of them are political and are of a non-judgmental nature, and they can relate to these people on a human level. So that was very important where I worked that uh, that somebody had that because you don't not want somebody in there who is like a cop or somebody who is judging people or, uh, or or being a moralist about it. You know, these are people with serious issues. There's all kinds of reasons that they have fallen into uh, their plight and their circumstance, and you need somebody they can relate to. Or relate to that and then understand them. So it was, yeah, it was very common for people from that uh, those subcultures to uh, to have been employed there. Right. No, it's a, it's an important point. Definitely, the sensibility uh, would make sense why those two would would match up. 
Um, the I know you mentioned some of these uh, as far as like the interesting circumstances you've been put in because uh, the book has been you know critically acclaimed and a lot of people um, have spoken so highly about it. Um, what what were some of the moments uh, you know anecdotally that you can kind of recall where it was like you um, you maybe could drop a little of the like well maybe I guess I'm not a I'm not a fraud sort of thing like um, were there one or two things that kind of stood out what was like holy shit I can't believe that thing happened like that you know comedian. Mm, I just, it's not, I've never said that. I'm, I'm still pretty sure that I'm a fraud. <laughs> no, um, I know you, you were mentioned that earlier. So I, I, let, let me, let me be the first to say that it's like, you can peel a little bit of that away. I'm, I, I think you're a pretty cool guy. You're pretty, you're pretty on the level. So you can, well, uh, the one, the one, the only real sign is that now I make money. So that, that's really the only thing. It's not so much credibility from my peers or from some of the people that love the book, you know, the back, cover of the book, if you look at the, the, the quotes that I got, the blurbs, you know, the first one's from Mel Brooks. Uh, on the top of the book, there's one from Norm MacDonald, mm-hmm. uh, Mark Marin, John Hodgman, Leonard Maltin. These are substantial names. And, you know, since the book has come out, I've heard personally from Steve Martin a couple times, Bob Odenkirk, uh, you know, a number of people who have praised the book. I know Steve Martin bought uh, a bunch of copies of it uh, for people for Christmas. He gave a copy to David Letterman, a copy to Martin Short, a copy to Paul Schaefer for Christmas. So uh, all of that is very, very gratifying. But it doesn't make me feel like any less of a fraud. <laughs> However, I am making money now, you know. So I know I had to preempt our interview last week because I had a phone meeting with uh, Spike Jones, the filmmaker, and a contingent of people that he's working with, Lance Bangs, who's a director as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so all this kind of gravy is now coming because of the book and the success of the book. And now that I'm a little bit more uh, in the public eye. So uh, all those things are great and they, they legitimize me to an extent, but uh, I know in my heart that uh, I'm definitely uh, just very lucky. You know, I'm, I'm no less of a bum now than I was 20 years ago. Sure. Uh, the only real difference that maybe makes me think otherwise is that uh, my bank account is uh, is larger than it was 20 years ago? <laughs> right. It's yeah. It's a, it's not hurting as much. Um, and exactly. So, yeah. So with uh, the last thing I want to ask with the the notion of because I've I've spoken to a few people who have uh, on this show who have written books and have climbed that mountain and then once they get across it they're like holy shit, I'm never doing that again. Not because it's like not a gratifying process, but like, like you mentioned before, it's a very, it's a disciplined line of work. Um, is it one of those things that you obviously uh, want to create uh, more within the context of books or obviously you want to kind of ping pong off that into uh, other endeavors? Yeah, well, right now I'm ping ponging, as you put it, yeah. Uh, writing a book is not really fun. You know, it's very isolating. You got to sit in a room by yourself, you know. Uh, and if you take a break from it, you immediately feel guilty. You know, there's always this thing that I'm not working hard enough, uh, in the back of my mind. And I, I always have that thing in the back of my mind because I know it's true. I'm really not. I could be much more prolific if I, uh, if I just sat down and, and, and stayed put. And also if the internet did not exist, I could probably work a lot harder. Um, but so I don't know if I want to write another book. I, I am writing a couple other books right now just to help people. I am offered a lot of ghostwriting gigs. Uh, they pay well, but they're not creatively uh, gratifying. They're also very difficult to do because you have to uh, compromise with somebody else's sensibility and somebody else's uh, uh, desires because it's their life story or their words. And so you kind of have to cut yourself out of it, even though you're the one writing it. Right. Um, so I find that very difficult. I don't really enjoy it. So I don't know uh, if I want to write another book. I'm sure I will because I have the ability to in the sense that people are coming to me and asking me to. Um, but I'm not sure uh, really what uh, would excite me to, to sit down and do it again at this point. Right now, I've got uh, many great opportunities to uh, cash in television-wise, film-wise, that's very exciting to me. I think I would love to, now that I have this bargaining chip of having a book, uh, I'd like to exploit that. You know, uh, Living in Los Angeles is a great uh, luxury for me. You know, Most kids who live in Los Angeles, they're, they're, they've got a script under their arm, even though they're working in a, in a coffee shop, and they want people to read it, and they would kill to have a meeting with whoever at whatever uh, uh, studio. But 
even before my book came out, I got called into some big meetings, Warner Brothers uh, with Brett Ratner's people. Brett Ratner's the guy who directs all the superhero movies, all the X-Men movies. And I went in there and my sitting on their desk, you know, and they're pitching ideas to me. And so it was a great luxury to have that. All their ideas, by the way, were fucking horrible. Uh, but but at, at the same time, it was just cool that they would be pitching me, whereas most kids would want to go in there with their shitty script and they're pitching them, you know. Right. So rather than getting brushed off by studio executives, they've been courted by studio executives. So that's really uh, exciting to me, you know. And in October, same thing. I had a meeting at 20th Century Fox, Scott Rudin's company, uh, for a Kevin Spacey project. And then uh, shortly after that, I had a meeting with this wonderful guy, actually, named Dante DeLorecho, who's a, a producer of Glee and a producer of American Horror Story. He was very excited about my stuff. So uh, I think that is probably the direction I'm going to go into because it's simply uh, uh, an opportunity most people don't have, and it's an opportunity that most people in this city would kill to have. And uh, it's just a great luxury. It's not like I don't have to write that spec script because I have this book, you know. Right. So uh, that is likely uh, the direction it's going to go in uh, for the time being, at any rate. Right. No, I, I think it's very, uh, it's very interesting. The idea of, um, because obviously you see it across, um, most, I mean, major blockbusters now where it's just like, you know, they're plucking these, uh, you know, directors that have, you know, taken a, a movie that is, uh, substantially less than, you know, the hundreds of millions of dollars are given for a blockbuster. It's like everybody is just looking for that kind of, you know, original voice, whatever that may mean. So it's really interesting that obviously you've been, um, you know, kind of plucked up and, and put into these situations where you, I'm sure the time like you were sitting there and just being like what why are they talking to me about this like this is bizarre oh man this is the worst <laughs> worst idea uh there was a guy in the meeting who was saying uh, oh we should turn it into this turn it into that and then this guy behind the desk goes how about this how about this we get a bunch of elderly comedians don rickles jerry lewis they're estranged from their children. There's problems at home. So we bring them together with the kids, and then right at the end of every episode, we'll ambush them with a family therapist. Huh? Huh? <laughs> I love that. And everyone like everyone has to play that certain role of being like, well, okay, um, so anybody else have any ideas? <laughs> Yeah, I was just sitting there, like, in silence, in disbelief. I mean, this is, not only is this the worst idea I've ever heard in my life, this guy is in charge of, like, strings <laughs> at a major studio. <laughs> like, he's a man with power in Hollywood. Right. He it can... was like a scene out of a Coen Brothers movie or something, like a Barton Fink or a, <laughs> yeah. a Hudsucker Proxy or something. You know, it was just, I just couldn't, uh, or the player, I just couldn't get over it, but... Uh, that's uh, that's Hollywood, baby. Yeah, exactly. But then that, but then you have that story, and then you'd be like, "Well, at least, uh, at least I got a lunch out of that, or at least I got some free catering." And <laughs> it's like, then that, I'll tell that you, the I will tell you what I got out of it. Actually, it was really other than the story. Uh, it was the meeting was in on the Warner Brothers lot in a mid-century walk-up office from like 1957, 58. It used to be Frank Sinatra's office on the Warren's lot. So that was cool. One half of Brett Ratner's office on the floor to the ceiling is just a giant bar, just all liquor. And then the bathroom in the office is the size of the rest of the office, and that's because it used to be Frank Sinatra's steam room. So I gotta say that was kind of worth taking the meeting alone just to see that. That was pretty cool. Sure, right, exactly. This uh, this piece of history, you're like, there's no way I would have seen this otherwise if this didn't happen. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, Cliff, thank you so much. This has been really fun, and I, I really like the uh, the correlative uh, connections you were able to make between the two, and ultimately, um, yeah, just just talk about fun stuff for an hour. So I really appreciate it, man. Yeah, no problem. My pleasure. Aren't you glad you listened to that thing? Holy moly, Cliff, just. Really, thank you very much for wanting to come on the show because uh, realistically, any I feel strange when a person is, you know, doing their, their promo cycle for whatever it is that they're putting out and I bug them to uh, be on the show via social media and um, it's just great because sometimes people really, really jump on it and are like, hey, that's an interesting idea. Of course, I'd love to do that. So thank you very much, Cliff, for taking 
the time out of your busy schedule to be on the show. And great stories he weaves, right? Trust me, buy the book. If you're even like just remotely interested in comedy, you will find so many amazing stories in there where you're just like, wow, I can't believe that. I can't believe that. So there we go. I will be talking to you next week from California again. I will be done with my vacation. And who knows? I may move to Austin, Texas. I'm kind of pushing my family in this direction. Austin is a great place. And it is relatively cheap, comparatively speaking, to Southern California. So I, I t- sort of ingest. But man, Austin's beautiful. You're lucky. If you live in Austin, you're lucky. I mean, I live in Southern California, so I really can't say that I'm not lucky because Southern California is pretty rad. But anyways, uh, the guest next week is a person who I love their drumming. Like I became obsessed with drumming at a young age and realized that I don't have the uh, chops to do that. But Sammy Siegler is on the show. You know him from like Gorilla Biscuits, Youth of Today, Glassjaw, Limp Biscuit. Yep, he played in Limp Biscuit. <laughs> so I can't wait to bring you that conversation, and it will be super fun. So visit the show's website at 100wordspodcast.com, and you can also find a show archive tab on that webpage, and you can listen to your heart's content from all of the back catalog. So yeah, I'm tired. I'm going to let you go. But thank you very much for listening, and next week I will talk to you. So please be safe, everybody. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, jabberjawmedia.com. Shh.